Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That helps with accountability. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but it's aimed at novices and strugglers, those who have had trouble reading the amazing Word of God in the past. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Genesis, which is a great book. That's what we're covering on the radio show. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we talked about Genesis 3, 1 through 6, and talked through the anatomy of temptation and sin, finishing with the silence of Adam at the end of verse 6. That show and others are available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, and SoundCloud. On today's show, we're going to continue in Genesis 3 starting with the fig leaves and moving to God's encounter with Adam and Eve, the curses and punishments and the like. So we've got a lot of great, famous stuff to cover today. Lord, be with us today as we unpack these verses. Help us to understand them and to apply them widely and narrowly to our lives, that we would better understand you and our relationship with you, your grace, your mercy, your judgment, and what you want for us and from us in the days to come. All right, we're going to take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 3, starting in verse 7 today. I want to go back to read verse 6 for the context and then continue. Verses 1 through 5 was the discussion between Eve and the serpent. And then verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Eugene Peterson writes that they desperately sewed fig leaves together to cover up what couldn't be covered. Now, the uh, nakedness is interesting because it frames the story in chapter 2, verse 25. That's the verse preceding what we now call chapter 3. And it's also going to be at the end in chapter 3, verse 21, where God's going to give them a different sort of clothing. So nakedness is central to the story, and it's they're covering themselves, which is the topic here in chapter 3, verse 7. Now, given what follows, we know these actions signal far more than what's apparent so far in verse 7, but here we have some early hints. First of all, whatever this is, it probably relates to sex in some way, given the fig leaf placement. It also points to the value of modesty, at least after eating the fruit. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 25, they were totally fine with being naked, and of course that has changed here. And it's not nakedness per se, so let's not confuse the issue. It's that something has changed their perception or what they're doing with nakedness that is the issue. So it's not nakedness per se. Of course, nakedness with your spouse, for example, is a wonderful thing. Uh, But something has changed in their perceptions of it. 
And somehow this connects to the tree's purpose. We know that as well, that this is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not so much what they see, but how they see it and what it now means to them. I think in this, we can think about children as they lose various forms of what we call their innocence. And of course, one of those is with respect to nakedness, right? Little kids run around naked and they don't think anything of it, but there comes an age where that's no longer the case. And I think most broadly, we can say that the fig leaves indicate that they're not comfortable with themselves. One last point to make here, looking forward, it's interesting that the eyes are involved with Eve's troubles and they provide symptoms of the damage here, right? That they see that they're naked and that's a problem. It also points forward to the solution or more of the problem that eyes are more likely to cause trouble in a Jewish worldview and it's ears and in particular hearing God's word, which is clearer and more powerful. Leon Cass says, having followed their eyes to alluring temptations, promising wisdom, human beings came to see, again through their eyes, their own insufficiency. Yet sight does not fully disclose the truth of our human situation. Human beings must open their ears as well as their eyes. And so Genesis is going to be rough on the eyes throughout. And this is an early uh, indication of it here for the second time in chapter 3. All right, let's go to verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So there's a lot to say here. Let's start with the beginning of verse 8, that God is walking in the garden. The first thing it reminds me of is Christ in Revelation 1, walking among the lampstands. Here it's God walking in the garden. So is God in human form here? Or is this, or is this merely what uh, is called an anthropomorphism? It's a fancy word for basically saying uh, a, something that looks like a man. It's, it's posed in man or human language. We also know that Adam and Eve recognize the sound of his walking, which tells us it had happened before and that they had walked with him before, presumably. A small thing, but I think interesting, we're told that it's in the cool of the day. Day is that word yom, again, that we talked about back in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, about the young and old earth and what day means in the scriptures. And here's another use of that Hebrew word for day. And this is an interesting detail. You can imagine this verse very easily without this phrase, but it, we're told specifically it's in the cool of the day. Now, that could be either early morning or late evening. Either way, it's foreshadowing something. If it's early morning, it's foreshadowing it's about to get hot in here. If it's late evening, it's foreshadowing it's about to get dark. So an interesting little detail that has a couple of interesting applications. It also signals that they would have been comfortable in the sun, but instead they're in hiding at this point. Now, verse 9, God calls out to man, a picture of his desire for fellowship and relationship. And again, it's very heavy on anthropomorphisms here. God's walking, talking, communicates. He seems to deliberate, and he seems to be affected by our actions. And so God is pictured in man-like terms here, whatever that exactly means. God is also seeking out fellowship and relationship despite their sin. 
And this is a vital point for us to understand that he's intervening quickly from out of his grace, rather than leaving them and us to live perpetually with the consequences of improper living, guilt, etc. He gives free will, but he's going to come and offer grace very quickly. Notice also that it's God who has to take the first step here. God is taking the initiative. Man is hiding. God comes and seeks him out. And it's the same with us. The fancy term for this is prevenient grace, that God's grace precedes even our ability to choose him. When Jesus speaks of this, he'll talk about the good shepherd looking for his lost sheep. And it's the same sort of thing that we see here. God's calling out despite the sin and wanting fellowship and relationship. Verse 9 and 10 has God questioning Adam and Eve. So again, this takes us back to a point we made in chapter 3, verse 1, about the use and the power of questions to induce soul-searching. Now, Satan did this in chapter 3, verse 1, out of evil motives, but here God is asking questions out of good motives. Now, the question is posed in second person singular. It's not posed to Adam and Eve, it's posed to Adam. And as we talked about last week when we were describing the sin of Adam and Eve, whatever it ultimately is, uh, God comes to Adam initially for an explanation that Adam is primarily or even ultimately responsible for what's taken place here. It's also interesting, of course, that God questions, but God is omniscient. So God knows, but still he asks. So it's not for his information. This is not a geographic question. Right? This is not a physical question. He's trying to get to the psyche. He's trying to understand. He's trying to get them to voice what's going on in their mind and their hearts. And the questions also underline their choices, where they've chosen to be by hiding, what they've chosen to do by their interaction with the serpent and ultimately by eating the fruit. This is going to be an opportunity for self-revelation for Adam and Eve, and therefore they have varying qualities of response that are possible. I think there's a powerful application for us here as we parent and counsel and teach, again, the power of questions to get people to wrestle with various things and to voice what they're thinking and engage in acts of self-revelation and increasing knowledge. When we make statements, we cut a lot of that short. And so the power of questions here And seeing what people will say and them hearing what they say is an important part of learning. So they've been asked a question, but we know as readers that there's trouble being signaled even before they answer when we see the non-verbal response in verse 8. They're hiding. They're afraid of fellowship. They're afraid of his voice. They didn't know how to respond to God post-sin. It's a new experience for them. It's important to note that they were not inherently scared by his approach. We saw this in chapter 2, but something has happened from their newly enlightened consciences. Verse 7 says they realized and their disobedience. Leon Cass says before each other, man and woman hide only their genitalia. Before God, they seek to hide themselves completely. The garden was a place of joy and fellowship with God, but it has now become a place of fear and hiding from God. And this applies to us hiding from God and from others. We're never called to hide from God. Often we're called to hide from people, or at least certain people, but hiding from people indicates fear, and again, maybe that's reasonable, or it's something we're not proud of. And so 
you know, there are times to hide. There are times to be shrewd as snakes in the words of Jesus. There are times to hide our actions. Jesus talks about not making our religious actions particularly showy. Uh, and even with ourselves, right? If we do things through the Spirit or unconsciously, uh, Jesus talks about the left hand not even knowing what the right hand is doing. And so there's a sense in which we're not always conscious of what we are doing. We're not hiding there exactly, but we're not fully aware of it either. And so there is a place for that, but there's never a time to hide from God. That makes no sense. Matthew Henry observes, we have reason to be afraid of approaching God if we're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is very helpful on this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Even in our sin, believers can approach the throne of grace with confidence. But it's even better when we haven't sinned, right? And here we have Adam and Eve stuck in both ways. They've sinned, and they don't know that they can approach God for his mercy and his grace at this point. Before they eat the fruit, their childlike obedience and naivete were sufficient. But here they have this greater knowledge, and they've violated it by being disobedient. And so something else is going to be required. Now, as God has alluded to with the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they now know more, right? It is a tree of knowledge. And Satan promised that back in chapter 3, verse 5. Their eyes have been opened here, factually and emotionally and relationally. Matthew Henry says they saw the folly of eating forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from and the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved and felt a disorder in their own spirits of which they had never before been conscious. And so what do they do with this? The fig leaves now we understand are a mask-like attempt to cover their shame. So the funny thing is, it fails from their perspective. We'll see it in the verses that follow, that despite the effort to cover their shame, they still have shame and fear and separation from God and each other. So the fig leaves don't work. It also, of course, fails from God's perspective. And we'll see this near the end of the passage in verse 21, that the efforts at man-made atonement are going to be rejected and seen as ridiculous. So they try to cover and conceal their sin without or before going to God and repentance. You know, it's interesting to think how this story could have read differently. They could have sought out God and asked for forgiveness. They could have asked for mercy. Again, that's asking a lot of uh, these brand new human beings in their relationship with God, but at least it's possible, and it's certainly possible for us, right? Instead of hiding, we take our sins to God and ask for forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So how silly it is to hide from God's law or God's love, and yet we do it all the time. Psalm 139, 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, just two verses before the passage I read a minute ago. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so with God, we should be honest with God and with others. We should pray and we should confess our sins to God and to others as appropriate. And I think there's lessons for parents here as well, particularly with young children who misbehave. How do we approach them after they've sinned? Not tempting them to lie, not tempting them to avoid uh, us. How we respond to them is crucial if we're seeking a pattern, a habit of confession and repentance. This is a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 3 today. We started in verse 7 with the making of the fig leaves. Verse 8, the man and his wife are afraid. Verse 9, God comes looking for them and asks Adam a question, where are you? Again, not a geographic question. And we've talked about the nonverbals of their reply, their hiding and their shame. But we want to get to the verbal reply in verse 10. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Eugene Peterson notes that they go from fig leaf actions to fig leaf language. Not totally accurate and honest. Somewhat honest, but evades with a semi-answer at the end saying, I hid. Cass says, Adam freely confesses his concern with the divine presence, even as he tries to rationalize his misconduct. He does show imagination in describing a vague fear, which is interesting because he hasn't presumably seen any hint of God's wrath before this. So that's interesting. And this he points to his nakedness here, not his disobedience, right? That would be the direct thing. But he's kind of distracted or distracting here by talking about the nakedness. And ironically, he's not being naked enough with God here. He's not being honest enough with God here. And he largely omits confession. Again, he could have repented before God came looking for him, or at least here. He could have been more forward, but he doesn't. What we're going to find in verse 11 is a much more forward question. And one of the downsides of asking a forward question is that anything that comes afterwards by way of apology is not going to be credible repentance, right? Once I pin you down with guilt, then your apologies after that just can't look as impressive. Uh, I think one last thing to think about here is how would God have responded differently if there had been confession and repentance from Adam at this point. Instead, we get this half answer, and we'll see the follow-up in verse 11. Bottom line here, Adam and Eve were implicitly convinced that their ways were better than God's ways, and then after that, they hid and tried to excuse or defend their behavior. And moving closer to God involves reversing those steps right? Not hiding, not defending, and not ultimately believing that our ways are better than God's. Okay, verses 11 through 13. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So in my notes, I have this titled, The Blame Game, right? That Adam blames Eve and God, and then Eve blames 
the serpent. Let's first consider the question from God in verse 11. It's a leading question. He's addressing the nakedness, which is Adam's angle in chapter 3, verse 10. And then the last part of the question tries to connect it to the disobedience. God's being much more direct here. There's no hiding now. Again, I think as parents, we, we, when we deal with our children, it's similar, right? We ask these vague questions, hoping that they'll come forward in repentance. And then if they don't, we turn up the heat and we get more direct. And that seems to be the way that God is handling Adam and Eve at this point. Note also that God doesn't ask them why, getting into motives and abstract thinking. He's very concrete here, who and what. Again, he's probably more concerned with the former. We know God is more concerned with the heart in general, but it's interesting that God is focused on the latter. He keeps it concrete. Again, I think we see analogies in how we deal with younger children. We tend to keep things more direct and more concrete. Verse 12, we have the reply from Adam, again, evasive, mostly, and then he kind of owns it at the end. As Cass notes, he's prefacing his confession with his excuse. Interestingly here, Adam displays his greater knowledge of good and evil in his attempts to avoid blame. He goes from knowing right and wrong to knowing who is right and wrong. So he's actually showing us some of the fruit of eating the fruit. And of course here, Adam also takes it like a man and blames his wife. She was the flesh of my flesh in chapter 2, verse 23, and now he's basically saying that she's a thorn in my flesh. We have here alienation between Adam and Eve as he throws her under the bus. In addition to their alienation from God, obviously the honeymoon is over, so to speak, at this point. We might have liked to see Adam fall on his sword for Eve and maybe take too much responsibility. But again, in contrast to that, Adam actually takes less responsibility than we would hope for, far less. It's also odd that he doesn't blame the serpent. Uh, So that's sort of interesting as well. We'll come back to that because Eve doesn't mind doing that. Leon Cass observes, we may smile at the man's attempt to avoid responsibility, but we must also acknowledge that he has a point. But in blaming Eve and God, this is a very slippery slope. I mean, he's right at some level, right? If, if God hadn't given him Eve, he wouldn't have gotten himself in this trouble. But this is a slippery slope to start blaming God and others. Garrett Kaiser says, when a man is capable of both blaming his loving maker and the one to whom he makes love, then scapegoating anybody else, even everybody else, is no great stretch. So there is some value in you know, laying out who all was involved, but ultimately, the lesson is that we have to take primary responsibility for our part of whatever has happened. Bottom line is it's better just to own our part of the sin. Verse 13 opens with the question to woman, and she is equally quick to avoid blame, but then she does take ownership. Neither one of these two is taking full credit for it, and that tells us that it's wrong, right? When If people are proud of something, if they've done something good, they won't make excuses. They'll try to take credit for it. When people start to evade, when we find ourselves evading and making excuses, we're convicting ourselves that this is not a good thing. That's why we're seeking to avoid blame, right? You just wish one of them would have stepped up and said, hey, I wear the plants in this family, but we don't see that. Sorry for the lame joke there. Uh, Let's get to the broadest point here. 
uh, of taking responsibility. You know, back in the 70s, you had Flip Wilson who said, the devil made me do it. And that's common for us, right? We'll blame the devil or we'll blame the world instead of blaming sin nature and taking responsibility. Matthew Henry says that though Satan's subtlety drew us into sin, yet it will not justify us in sin. Though he is the tempter, we are the sinners. So again, there's nothing wrong with talking about the role of the world and the devil in tempting, but ultimately it's sin nature and free will where the responsibility must lie. We are responsible for our own choices, our own responses to temptation, as we talked about in last week's passage. I have some old secular examples in my notes. Uh, 1990, American University President Richard Brerenzenzen, I can't say his name, he resigned after being caught making obscene phone calls, and he called it uncontrollable impulse disorder. Or maybe you remember D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who had his troubles lying about his chemical dependency, what he called, quote-unquote, and he said, that was the disease talking. I did not do that on purpose to you. I was a victim. And the writer John Leo noted that he combined the three languages of addiction, victimology, and political evasion. So we see a lot of this in the public eye. We see it in other examples like crazy lawsuits, right, where someone spills hot coffee in their lap and they're going to blame, you know, a, a restaurant for that or the warning labels that are hilarious on some products. If we look a little closer to home in the church, maybe some examples that come Uh, a little closer to home are spiritual gift tests or personality tests. Or maybe we blame our heredity or our environment. We blame our past or our parents. Or we blame tough circumstances for the reasons that we respond poorly. C.S. Lewis talks about rats in the basement and that the rats are always there, but we only see them when we sneak up on them. When we see the rats then don't make excuses about the rats. Don't say the lights turning on cause the rats to be there. No, the rats are always there. So use the lights being turned on quickly as an opportunity to deal with the rats in the basement rather than making excuses. Or think about our language. When we say, you made me angry. No, you made yourself angry, right? You responded poorly to the circumstances. So we often make excuses for ourselves. Sometimes we make it for others as well. Sometimes we blame God, we blame circumstances, instead of blaming ourselves for perverting the providence that has been put in front of us. Finally, it's interesting that God just accepts their answers at this point. You know, as a parent, you can, you can uh, sympathize with this, right? When do you continue the discussion with your kids? Do you refute them? Do you argue with them? Do you continue the discussion? He just accepts their confessions and defense such as they are, and moves on. At this point, he thinks that's the best way forward. And I think that's provocative for us as well. Sometimes we push arguments too far with other people when it's just not going to bear much fruit. Leon Cass says, God has good reason to be satisfied with the inquest. Shifting blame and denying responsibility for wrongdoing proclaim, despite themselves, the existence of good and bad, right and wrong. Making excuses for oneself is, in fact, a concession that something needs to be excused. Neither man nor woman says, I did it and I'm proud of it. I think that's really provocative, right? We look at this and go, man, this is lame. I can't believe Adam and Eve did this. Well, what was Satan's response to sin? Basically, I'm proud of it. I don't care, right? Adam and Eve care. They're not handling it nearly perfectly, but God can work with this, right? They're acknowledging sin. They're making excuses. 
Uh, you would prefer much more honesty and directness, but there is something to work with here, and God decides to let it be at this point. All right, this is a good place to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available of previous shows on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. We'll be back in a minute. All right, welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 3 today, starting in verse 7. And in this segment, we're going to start in verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. A couple of things that are not in the passage that are interesting to think about. It's interesting the snake stays there, or is made to stay, and we're not told about it. If it's a voluntary thing, you can picture him enjoying the moment, seeing Adam and Eve get in trouble. Or you might say, well, what's the point in leaving? God's going to track him down anyway. You may also have caught that the snake is not interrogated by God. Is he beyond repentance? Is it premeditated and too soon for the serpent to have repented? Uh, Is it too complicated to discuss in front of the human beings at this point? In any case, if you look at the structure of the passage, he's spoken to Adam and Eve, now the curse and punishment for the serpent and Satan, and then the judgments on Adam and Eve are reversed. And so the thing in the middle of this is verses 14 and 15, the curse for the serpent and the Satan. It is central to the passage. Verse 14, cursed above all livestock to crawl on the ground and eat dust. Uh, The word for cursed here in Hebrew is arur, which is a pun on the word for cunning in chapter 3, verse 1, which is arum. Now, why punish the snake? Don't have a great answer for you there. It's certainly a reminder to man. And it's interesting that after this episode, we have something that connects something unpleasant to Satan. The snake is transformed, at least physically, from something that was impressive, persuasive, and alluring to something that is repulsive. Verse 15, the beginning of it starts with the enmity between serpent and woman. And of course, this uh, points to the snake's reputation with people. And broadly, it prefigures the alienation between the rest of nature and mankind that we're going to see again in verses 17 through 19. And of course, the uh, end of the passage is awesome. Uh, The crushed head versus the bitten heel. So offspring is literally seed of the woman. And the word is both singular and plural. And this, of course, foreshadows Christ and his victory at the cross. Paul plays with the singular aspect of this in Galatians 4 in a memorable passage. And then I like Hebrews 2.14 here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So it targets the animal, but it alludes to Satan here. It's interesting to consider, did Satan face diminished stature or ability after this event? Uh, That's a longer discussion. We talked about that in Revelation, actually. It's a very interesting question, but goes beyond the scope of where we're at in this passage. Uh, And it also sets up the idea of the adopted children of God versus the children of the devil, and certainly points forward to the victory that is available to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 is the punishment for women represented by Eve here. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
So there is grace within judgment here. John 16, 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So children will follow. Humans would continue. They're not going to be wiped out and started over. So there's grace and mercy there. But there's going to be pain. It says greatly increase the pains rather than giving her pains or giving her new pains. All of this is speculative and requires some imagination. She probably had not experienced this unless she'd had daughters that are not recorded. The first sons are recorded in chapter 4, verse 1, and the usual interpretation is is that the sons are the first children. If that's the case, then she's not even familiar with what these pains would look like or what giving birth would look like. Of course, it's interesting in light of chapter 2 that we have a reversal of the blessing. Eve had been born from Adam, so to speak, and now we're going to have children born from Eve. And of course, children could have been born lots of ways. Could have been rubbing elbows and they pop out of our belly buttons or out of our ears or something, right? So God's structured in a certain way, but it's going to come through Eve. Uh, Unfortunately, there's going to be pain as well. And the child's going to have pain as well as his life starts. Leon Cass makes a really interesting observation here that it's interesting that the curse is pain caused largely by a relatively large head. And the head, of course, is a proxy for knowledge, which is what got them into trouble in the first place. Leon Cass says, anticipates the often much more painful act of separation when the child exercising the newly awakened mental powers made possible by his large head reaches for his own autonomous knowledge of good and bad and repeats the original rise and fall from obedience and innocence. Kids do the same thing, right? They're big heads, get into knowledge, and then they don't handle it well, and they rebel and disobey and act out of a lack of faith and so on and so forth. So the big head, it's interesting that it causes pain because it's been causing pain ever since. The second part of this is that her desire will be for the husband who will rule over her. Now this should be a purely positive thing, right? The ruling over by the husband, but of course the ruling over now is alluding to problems. Uh, It's the same language that's used in chapter 4 verse 7 for sin at Cain's doorstep and the desire that it has for him. Of course, all of this is to be redeemed. The pain, uh, the, the marriages, all that is to be redeemed through Christ and the Spirit. Now, this also means she's going to desire the man even and despite poor leadership. And the ruling over seems to be with an emphasis on sins of commission, could be sins of omission as well, but ruling over sounds like he's doing bad things to her. Again, what should have been universal joy and blessing has been perverted by the fall. Here we're into the biblical case for justification for what is called patriarchy, that the husband is going to rule, and it's developed here. So why is this the case? One angle is that it's fitting given her sin, that it strikes at what was or would become a primary purpose or drive for her and her husband. And if so, here she's going to receive pain and subjection in response to her sin of seeking pleasure and having pride, that these are fitting punishments for what she's done in this uh, event. I think we could also think about, is this prescriptive or predictive, right? That there's going to be changes, and maybe this is just describing the world as it's going to need to play out after these events. 
Now, we've already seen some of this before the fall. Again, who does God come looking for? He comes looking for Adam as the leader of the family. Adam is before Eve, and so it wouldn't be shocking to see Adam as the leader uh, already, but it's certainly made clear at this point. As C.S. Lewis notes, someone's got to lead in a marriage, and if it's done well, it's generally useful for women and children. And often men don't lead well, but that's the issue. It's not leading per se that's a problem. It's if it's not done well. Uh, with respect to women, this is not, uh, you know, some kind of problem with their dignity as a human person. It's not speaking to strict gender roles. Those are much uh, longer discussions to have. But the idea that men would lead in marriage, hopefully well, is what is called for in this verse. And maybe it connects to her special reproductive role, right? The great privilege and blessing of being able to give birth. Maybe that connects to the husband's role as the leader as defined in this passage as well. If you think about others in the animal kingdom, human mothers have a greater dependence on the father given the longer gestation and the very long dependence of children on parents. And so the father's role is that much more important. As Leon Cass says, her focused love for her children causes her desire also for her husband as their father to grow more focused and more intense. How to gain the male's cooperation and permanent presence, how to domesticate him, a man who rules or appears to rule, gets domestic authority in exchange for serving the needs of the woman and her children. And so I think you can make the case that this is just the way the world had to go, given biology, given uh, the fall of man and nature. Verses 17 through 19, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here we have the punishment for men as represented by Adam. First thing to consider is, does he think he's going to get off the hook? Maybe he thinks this is all going to be pinned on Eve. I mean, if you come out of verse 16, he's probably feeling pretty good, right? He hasn't been fingered first. And then second, verse 16 ended with him ruling over her. And so maybe he imagines that he's going to get off scot-free, but of course, it doesn't go that way. Notice the motivation in verse 17, because he allowed his wife to talk him into sin. Again, this is the idea of poor leadership. Another angle on the patriarchy is that men aren't very good at leadership and they need to work on that, right? If women uh, struggle with submission and men struggle with leadership, then it makes sense to put them in those spots to show them their weakness and to show them how it can be redeemed through Christ and the Spirit, this is not necessarily his first sin, but it is the one that's fingered here. He was tempted by Eve, and he chose to follow her into this sin. Verse 17, cursed is the ground, and then painful toil is required. It's the same Hebrew word as pains in verse 16, the only three times this word is used. Verse 18, thorns and thistles. By Verse 19, sweat of your brow, and then return to dust and the ground. Now, the reference to ground is, a, is talking about the role of plants. Again, they're going to be eating plants and not animals until chapter 9, verse 2. The word painful toil, that's the curse, not work per se. Right? Work is a pre-fall institution. It's back in chapter 2. So work is not the issue. It's the painful toil. That's what's going to be the curse at this point. Our work is meant to bless us, God, and others. That's God's goal for us with respect to our work. And again, that's to be redeemed at the cross through Christ and the Spirit. They'll be work in heaven. So don't confuse 
work with painful toil as is being uh, caused at this point. And then the dust reference is really powerful as well as here. Chapter 2, verse 7, man was created from dust and breath. And if you kick out the breath, you kick out God's breath, all you have left is the dust. Again, we have grace within judgment here. It does not destroy their calling. He could still produce. It just was going to be more difficult. And this is appropriate and just in other ways. The punishment fits the crime. It's opposition to his aspiration to be self-sufficient and godlike. And, Cass notes, he gets precisely what he reached for, only to discover that it is not exactly what he wanted. And all of this strikes also to his purpose and drive. If you go back to Genesis 128, Dallas Willard notes that this is a loss of the power required to fulfill their role as God's ruler over the earth. And I think we also see love and respect here as well from Ephesians 5.33, that women are looking for love and men are looking for respect, and respect is connected largely to the things that we do in this context, working the soil. Last thought here is this formalizes and redefines the rule and dominion that had been handed out in chapter 1, verse 28. Leon Cass is very useful here. He says, God addresses the man here not as ruler, but as ruled. Man, ruled internally by his desire for woman, had submitted externally to her voice. Even if he subsequently gains rule in the household, man now knows that he is hardly a ruler. He's a slave who must work and serve the earth in order to eke out a living for himself and his family. Woman periodically will suffer painful labor, but man will labor painfully all the days of his life. The dusty earth opposes his needs, resists his plow, and finally devours him whole. All right, that's a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We got through verse 19 of chapter 3 of Genesis, and I have a few final thoughts on curses and punishments before we move on to the last part of the passage. The first is that it's interesting that the serpent and the ground were cursed, but Adam and Eve were only judged and punished or disciplined. So there is a difference in the language there that is seems to be important. Second, it's interesting to consider the extent to which punishment was based on their actions their omissions, and then their later blame deflection that we saw in their encounter with God. You think about this as parents, again, there's the wrongdoing of the kid, but then there's the lying or not, there's how they handle it. And so we're not told at all uh, whether the curse and the punishment are connected to the actions, the lack of actions, or the conversation afterwards. In a nutshell, their sins caused abundance to become scarcity, fellowship with God and others to become alienation and conflict. They sinned by eating, and so they would suffer to eat. And of course, life leads to now death. Adam has been awakened to, at least intellectually, his future mortality. More broadly, there are many types of death or separation that are collateral damage of sin here. Verse 7 is psychological death. Man is, has death from himself low self-esteem, self-consciousness, guilt, and shame. There's a spiritual death, man separated from God, the fear and the hiding. 11 through 13 is a sociological death, the man from man, separation, the blame game, the trouble at home. 17 through 19, you've got environmental and economic death, scarcity from the ground, being cursed, man being separated from nature. Nancy Piercy says the two central tasks of adulthood, raising the next generation and making a living, will be fraught with the pain of living in a fallen and fractured world. And so we have here a hostile world and fragile 
people and the troubles that come from that. And then finally, verse 19, the physical death, aging, pain, suffering, and eventually uh, death and mortality set in here. And it seems to be connected from the inability to periodically eat the fruit, which will not, no longer be available to them after chapter 3, verse 22. Last comment here, chapter 3, verse 15, directly points to Christ, the first such uh, passage that talks about Christ as Savior. Verses 16 through 19 have a number of hints, though, that are interesting within the fall and the judgment. We have the pain and the sorrow of verse 16, uh, similar to Isaiah 53, that Christ was a man of sorrows. Uh, there's sub the subjection to God uh, of Christ in Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We have the curse uh, in verse 17, Galatians 3.13, says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The thorns uh, remind us of the crown of thorns of Christ. The sweat reminds us the sweat of blood of Christ. And then, of course, the death uh, in verse 19 for Adam and Eve points forward to the death on a cross by Christ to redeem all this, and all of it comes back to a tree. Verse 17 has a tree that gets them into trouble, and it's a tree or the cross of Christ that will be the solution. All right, verses 20 and 21, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I think the first thing to say is that if you're reading this the first time or thinking about it with fresh eyes, these are two surprising tangents before they're kicked out of Eden. How's Adam going to respond to the bad news? Is he going to kick the dog? Is he going to say, hey, honey, thanks for the fruit? Leon Cass says his immediate response is reported in one of the most beautiful and moving sentences of the entire Bible. He does not despair. He looks instead to a promising future of hope and children. He names her in verse 20. Again, this establishes dominion, as we've seen already in the first few chapters of Genesis. And he names her Eve, which means life or mother of the living. Man's rib gives life to the woman, woman gives life to the world. A very hopeful, forward-looking name, focused on children, blessing, and legacy in the face of mortality and the penalty they've just received. In a sense, he's pointing from mortality back to immortality through legacy, through family, through generations. As Adam is redeemed by Christ, so Eve is eventually redeemed by Mary, the mother of Christ. Eve is the mother of all mortals. Mary is the mother of all immortals through Jesus. It was their disobedience that represented through their response to what they heard from Satan. For Mary, it's going to be obedience to what she hears from the angel Gabriel. Now, we're not told where the name comes from. It's possible that God gives the name to Adam. And if so, this would imply God's covenant with man and Adam obeying God. I think it's easier to read this as if it comes from Adam. And if so, this implies his faith in God's word and God's goodness. He doesn't extend the sin's impact by blaming Eve further or shaming her, right? He doesn't call her by name lover of apples, right? He gives her a name that's very forward-looking and positive, Adam here is leading the way on redemption and turning this brokenness into a moment of beauty. It's also interesting that he now no longer names her with reference to himself. Remember that the initial name for her is woman, which is derived from man. He maintains the same name, which is connected to the word ground, 
which reminds us and himself of his mortality and illustrates that he cannot extend his life directly. Verse 21, we have God's redemptive effort versus leaving it at the fig leaves. This is not a matter of immodesty or warmth. It's pointing forward to God's efforts rather than ours. Our efforts cannot save. Our efforts cannot cover sin. It's only God's. It's also a way of illustrating for them that they would understand and see the consequences of sin and death. Instead of the abstract promise of future consequences, here we have this concrete illustration of what it's like and how sobering to be covered by a warm animal skin, especially when they had not seen bloodshed previously and after Adam had named the animals and cared for them. This is the first recorded bloodshed in the Bible. And so it prefigures Christ and the shedding of blood for the atonement of sin. But for them in this moment, it's a radical and unexpected way to pay for sin, which underlines both the extent of God's grace and his judgment. And it's a picture of us being weighed down by our sin. Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is filthy rags. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5 is also very good on this. And so We are covered by the blood. We are clothed by the blood of Christ in justification, in sanctification, and in glorification. Another small thing in 21, it says he clothed them, and it's not entirely clear whether he enabled them to be clothed by the skins or actually put the skins on them. Either way, if we're looking forward, it's interesting that their sin and the skins would make them unclean from a priestly standpoint. And so they must be expelled from the garden, which was a type of temple. And that comes up in the next passage. So let's read that then to close out verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a lot of force in this passage. We have eviction, banished, you have the sword and the angel enforcing this. So this implies that they didn't want to go. They are kicked out and they are kept out. They've eaten themselves out of house and home, you might say. As with Cain and Babel, we'll see the same thing. They're going to be kicked out of their comfort zone. It's interesting that a sword will also appear at the end in Revelation 19.21. And Alec Motyer observes the whole of human history from the fall to the last day is bracketed about by the sword of holiness. Verse 22 begins with, has become like one of us. So we're back to the Trinity that we had talked about in chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, We have the mention here as well of knowing good and evil. And we wonder if this is an intellectual thing and or an experiential thing. Cass makes a provocative observation here in playing with this has become like one of us, right? That that seems like an improvement. Cass says we have it on the highest authority right here that we have witnessed not the fall of man, but the rise of man, at least in terms of his mental powers. So it's both, right? It's a fall in terms of morality and choice and evil and disobedience and rebellion. But the word, the phrase fall of man It does not appear in the Bible, right? That's something we've uh, attached to this. But there's another sense, and verse 22 is alluding to this, where there's been uh, an increase, right, mentally. And Cass observes the rise of man to his mature humanity, to be sure, is full of pathos and ambiguity. But there has been a rise of sorts, right? They have gained something as they've lost it. 
and that requires, uh, that's going to point to sin. It is sin. It's going to point to sin and the need for a savior. This improvement, this gain in knowledge uh, has been has come at the cost of greater awareness and greater sin, greater culpability, and therefore the need for a savior. 22, I think, is also really interesting that they can no longer have access to the tree of life. In other words, they should not live forever. Now, part of this is simply justice. It's what God had promised. But could they be allowed to eat that tree after they've sinned? Could there be no consequences to sin? No. And if you're denied the tree of life, that takes you to death. The wages of sin is death. So there is justice here. But there's also grace of a number of sorts. First, it would be terrible to be immortal but left in sin. And that's what they would experience spiritually on earth. Eternal life in a state of sin would mean eternally trying to hide from God or living in rebellion. And instead, earth is the only hell that Christians will know. Garrett Kaiser observes the wages of sin are death, but sin without that wage would be hell. It would be a world where torture could literally be endless. As it is, death cheats every torturer in the end. In other words, death is God's mercy on our fallen condition. A second form of grace here is that given the infirmities that we face after the fall, eternal life on earth would be vastly inferior to what we'll experience in heaven. And so to settle for this is not that great. It's grace that we're given something, we're offered something much better. And then there's an interesting sort of grace, or at least a mixed blessing here, that we tend to be obsessed with death and eternal life. Cass says here, man's godlike powers, the text suggests, will focus on his mortality, a major preoccupation of the fully self-conscious human being. Man will now recoil from death and will seek its remedy, ultimately in bodily immortality. So it is not good for man that he should live forever on earth. Being finite provides man a release from his troubles. More important, awareness of mortality will eventually inspire him to seek what is true, just, and holy. With their path blocked to the tree of life, human beings, both the ones in the story and the readers, can turn their attention not to living forever, but to living well. A few comments in closing up. Of course, we have an introduction to sin nature here. We talked about that especially last week. And from here forward, the rest of the Bible is God's rescue plan for man and nature. We see this in Romans 8, 19 through 23 with respect to nature, but of course, it's the rescue plan for man as well. And God could have done other things. He could have destroyed everything and started again. He could have let sin destroy them. He could have started over with one who was incapable of sin. And instead, he decides to risk continuing the original plan and still allowing the freedom to choose. And from here, we'll go from Adam to Noah and to Abraham and then Israel. Finally, I like what Rodney De La Santa observes about gardens in the Bible. You know, here we have God as the gardener in the Garden of Eden. But after the fall, there's going to be redemption at the Garden of Gethsemane. As De La Santa observes, the grand narrative that began with gift and loss in Eden seems to have come full circle to a futile agony in still another failed garden. But then the Garden of Gethsemane is redeemed at the cross, and then a garden has a new tomb. And it's interesting that Mary thinks Jesus is a gardener. Della Santa concludes, as indeed he was, regaining by his death and resurrection the Garden of Eden for humanity that had foolishly lost it. All glory to God for his grace, his mercy, in responding to our sin with a Savior. And just his grace within Genesis 3. We focus on the punishment, the curses, but there's tons of grace even here in Genesis 3. Thank you, Lord, for that. 
been good to be with you today. We hope we'll see you the next time on The Word Diet.